This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We pray today that as we dig into this foundational text in Romans, that you would show us the source of our strength, the source of our confidence, that it is not in ourselves, but that it is in the sovereign power of the gospel, which is unleashed as the gospel is proclaimed. You have called us to be your witnesses. And so, Father, as we go forth each day, as we encounter people, as we're around people at school and at work and friendships in our neighborhood, help us to remember that the power is not in us, that it is in you. It is in this incredible message that you have given us that we see in Romans. So speak to us now. Help us to lock in on you. Clear away any distractions that we would hear from you today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are new here today, we uh, have begun a new series in the book of Romans. It's called People Made New. What does it take for lives to be transformed? Romans gives us the answer to that. And today we're going to look at just a couple of verses in chapter 1. We're talking about the power of the gospel. There'll be weeks where we'll cover significant chunks of whole chapters. This is not one of them. I'm just going to cover a couple of verses today because Romans 1, 16 and 17 is sort of like a thesis statement. And everything else in Romans is just going to kind of flow from this. And Paul's just sort of laying out this thesis about the power of the gospel. So it's really foundational. And so we're going to just camp on a couple of verses today. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have a, a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. If you don't, uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles in the pews, uh, this is going to be on page 939. Romans 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can be seated. One day, an Iranian pastor was driving down the road with his wife, and they stopped at a convenience store to buy water. And as they pulled up, they both noticed sort of a a menacing-looking Muslim man that was leaning against the wall outside the store. 
the man was, was carrying a, a machine gun, obviously a religious Muslim, a full beard, robe. But before the husband walked into by the water, his wife, prompted by the Holy Spirit, said, I think you should give that man a Bible. And the, the husband just uh, kind of looked at him and uh, said, I'll pray about it. And so he, walk, he walked in and, uh, and got the water and got back in the car and the wife said, you didn't give him the Bible, did you? And he said, no, I, I prayed about it and, you know, I just, I just didn't, I didn't feel led. She said, you should have given him the Bible. And they, they, drove, they drove away and uh, the husband could tell his wife is still troubled about this. He said, fine, if you want me to die, I'll die. Turns the car around, goes back, and approaches this man and hands him a Bible. And this menacing-looking Muslim man in full beard and robe with a machine gun begins to weep. And he said, three days ago, an angel appeared to me and told me to walk to this village. And I walked three days to get here. And the angel told me that if I would walk to this village, that someone would hand me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this book. Now, in America, you know, the, the, the stakes of sharing the gospel, the, the, poss- the potential persecution for sharing the gospel is not like it is in Iran, certainly, but all of us have been tempted to clam up when we need to speak up with the gospel of Christ. So what is it that can give us that confidence and that boldness? It's understanding the power of the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's begin by kind of looking at Paul's boldness here. And he says at the beginning of verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now this is an issue that we see in other scriptures. Jesus says to us in Mark 8.38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me, And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, Jesus would not have warned his disciples not to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul would not have written that to Timothy unless they knew that we would at times be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Well, why would we ever be ashamed of the one who came for us and bled and died for us and was raised for us and who has poured out the Holy Spirit 
for us and who has drawn us to himself and adopted us as sons and daughters and forgiven us of all of our sins and will one day uh, take us to be with him forever. Why would we ever be ashamed of such a one? Well, in the case of the early believers, think about the brutality of the persecution that they were facing. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, Paul says there five, time, five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and of course eventually he was going to be martyred. D don't you think that there had to be times when Paul was going into a new city and he's just been like stoned or whipped or beaten in the last city and he's still got the scars and the bruises on his body. He's still maybe oozing with, with, uh, with, with blood because of what he just went through in the previous city. Don't you think that there were times when Paul entered a new city and thought, you know, maybe I just need to, be a little less bold with the gospel. Speak up a little less. I'm sure that had to be a temptation. And when you think about who Paul is writing to, these believers in first century Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, these believers are living in a city where everybody but them is saying Caesar is Lord. And when they confess which each of them did at their baptism. Jesus is Lord. That was like dressing in red in front of an angry bull. And their blood often ran red in the streets of Rome because of their faith in Christ. When you think about believers in many parts of the world today, places like North Africa and the Middle East, places like Iran, which I mentioned earlier. You want to hear a testimony to the power of the gospel? I want you to think about this. In 1979, when the Islamic Revolution took place in Iran, you know, before that time, Iran was a fairly secular uh, society. They had this Islamic Revolution in the late 70s. So in 1979, there were about 500 Muslim background believers in the entire country. And so it would stand to reason, you know, this, this Islamic revolution takes place. The, the, you know, the normal thing would be to think, well, this will take care of the 500, you know. There won't be any believers in Iran. So 1979, 500 Muslim background believers today conservative estimates are that there are 500,000 Muslim background believers. Those are conservative estimates. Could be as high as a million. It's one of the fastest growing churches in the world. But listen, every time one of these precious people comes to faith in Christ, they know they know they are very likely to lose their family and the potential for losing their lives is always there. What about us in America? 
why would we ever be ashamed of the gospel? For us, the issue is not that we're afraid of losing our lives. A lot of times it's because we're afraid of losing our acceptance with a certain group of people. We're afraid, we, we, we think that we're in, 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 entitled to be uh, comfortable in all relationships, you know, and to be perceived as cool and be accepted by everyone else. We should be ashamed of ourselves in light of what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world for the, and, and how bold they are with the gospel and how not bold we sometimes are with the gospel. Look, all of us, myself included, have been tempted to lean back about our faith in Christ when we should be leaning forward with it. All of us have been tempted to commit the sin of silence when we're called to speak up for Jesus. And that's, that's why Jesus tells us these things. That's why Paul writes these things to Timothy, because this is how we are. So where does boldness come from? The second thing we see here is Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. Now, now we see it. Now we see where this boldness comes from. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So in city after city, Paul had experienced this phenomenon. He walks in and he begins to talk to people about Christ. And some will mock and ridicule. And others will, could be just downright hostile. And some could be indifferent. But others, when the gospel is, is shared, there's this power that is unleashed. And, and their lives are just utterly transformed. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner of Southern Seminary says this, the preaching of the gospel does not merely make salvation possible, but effects salvation in those who are called. So Paul says things in 1 Corinthians 1.18 like this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says in verses 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so when the gospel is shared, yeah, I mean, there are going to be some people um, who are, are, are not going to respond favorably. Now, in our culture, most of them are not hostile. Sometimes they, they may be, but, but, but rarely. Usually in America, the response that we get um, is just indifference. I mean, just a yawn, you know. They just want to look at their phone or, you know, go on to the, the next thing in, 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 in life. Um, but if we share the gospel enough, 
we see that in some people, something's happening. The power of God is just, is just being unleashed. And see, God is working in their hearts. And God is calling them. That's the language that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, God, is, God is calling them. And when, see, when those two things collide, when the, when the power of God is unleashed through the gospel, and when God is dealing with someone and calling them, when those two things collide, new life happens. New life happens. And so, Paul had seen this over and over. Uh, Laura Hillenbrand um, is a, a writer who wrote the, the book Unbroken. And uh, this is an amazing book. I commend it to you. It tells a story of Louis Zamperini, who was uh, an Olympian, a track star. He was in the 1936 Olympics. And he was shot down over the Pacific Early in World War II, he was picked up by the Japanese. He, was, uh, he suffered for the remainder of the war, several years, just brutalized in Japanese POW camps. And after the war, he dealt with uh, PTSD, uh, turned to uh, alcohol. He was, he was with shutting out everyone in his life who loved him, including his wife, Cynthia. And one night, just kind of in desperation, Cynthia uh, said to Louis, let's, let's go to this meeting. They lived in Los Angeles. There was this young guy who had set up a tent right in downtown Los Angeles. This is 1948. A uh, young guy nobody had ever heard of at that point named Billy Graham had set up this tent middle of Los Angeles, and Cynthia said, let's go. And so reluctantly, he went and he was uncomfortable throughout Billy's message. And when he, uh, when he asked people to pray at the end, Louis Zamperini could think of nothing but just getting out of that tent. And so he grabbed Cynthia's hand and, and, and he, he, went, he went with the intent of, of, of leaving, of getting out. Laura Hillenbrand tells us what happened next. She says, as he reached the aisle, he stopped. Cynthia, the rows of bowed heads, the sawdust underfoot, the tent around him all disappeared. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned toward Graham. He felt supremely alive. He began walking. He went home that night, dumped everything, all of the alcohol out of his, his uh, liquor cabinet, uh, you know, poured, it, poured it all out, slept peacefully without nightmares for the first time in years. And he got up in the morning feeling at peace and he dug out uh, the Bible that he had been issued when he went into the, the military and he went to a park and, and Laura tells what happened next. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace when he thought of his history what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered but the divine love that had intervened to save him in a single silent moment his rage his fear his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away he was a new creation softly he wept 
How does that happen? How does that happen? How does new life like that happen? It's when these two things collide, okay? When the, when the power of God is unleashed through the preaching of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And when God is dealing with a person's heart and calling them, the collision of these two things is new life. Uh, Paul says, writing to the church at Thessalonica, uh, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 4 and 5, he says, therefore, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, I mean, we don't, we don't control this. We do not control this. We do not control the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so our responsibility is to share the gospel with everybody, with every person. And just let the wind of the Holy Spirit blow where it will. We don't control that. We're called to share the gospel with, with every person. Right? And, and the Holy Spirit, um, you know, deals with people. Um, we don't control who he deals with. We control that we share it with, with, with everyone. And so there's a huge aspect of God's sovereignty involved in this. But God's sovereignty never negates human responsibility. And in the very next sentence, Paul's going to um, point to that. Look at verse 16 again. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So two things here. First of all, it's for everyone. Jews, Greeks, black people, white people, brown people, every tribe and tongue. And then it's to everyone who believes that's the human responsibility element. We must believe. And as we'll talk about in a moment, belief means a lot more than just kind of intellectual assent. It is trusting our lives into, into Jesus as Savior and King. Okay. Third, what is revealed in the gospel? What is revealed in the gospel? Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, this phrase, the righteousness of God, is sort of like a diamond that if you, if you hold it beneath the light of scripture and you turn that diamond slightly in different directions, it sparkles in new ways. So I want us to see three ways in which this phrase, the righteousness of God, is like a biblical diamond that just sparkles when we turn it. First of all, righteousness is an attribute of God. Righteousness is an attribute of God. God is righteous in his holy character. It's who he is. He is righteous, 
and he will always do what is right. So how do we see that in the gospel? I want us to fast forward to chapter 3 of Romans and verses 24 through 26. Paul there talks about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, the cross reveals the integrity of God, the, the self consistency of God. God is holy and righteous. He cannot sweep sin beneath the rug. Sin has to be judged. It has to be dealt with. And the cross shows that God can save us. He can save sinners like us without compromising his own holiness, his own righteousness, because sin has been dealt with. God's holy wrath against sin was, was poured out. God became a human being and took it himself in our place. But he did not sweep sin beneath the rug, right? And so the cross preserves the righteous character of God so that he can be both just and our justifier. And so we see that here. There's also an aspect of the fact that the gospel also shows that God is righteously faithful to his covenant promises. God promised to Abraham that, that through him, he was going to create a worldwide family. It says in, in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, every tribe and tongue. And so the promise to Abraham was that, that through Israel, that God was going to bless, going to have this worldwide family, okay? And when Israel fails in that mission, God's promise does not fail, because through Israel, the Messiah comes. And through Jesus, every tribe and tongue, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in the gospel. So the gospel shows that God is righteously faithful to his covenant promises. There's an aspect of that too. So righteousness is an attribute of God. Second, righteousness is an activity of God. So in the Old Testament, you see many scriptures where righteousness is very closely linked to salvation, to God coming to rescue his people. One example, Isaiah 46 and verse 13. <clears throat> God says, <clears throat> I bring my righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. 
So what's happening here is, is here God's righteousness is God acting, God acting to rescue, to, to intervene, to come to the, to the rescue, the deliverance of his people. Now obviously we see that in the gospel. Third, <clears throat> righteousness is a status given by God to believers. In other words, when someone trusts in Jesus, God pronounces a legal verdict over the believer. Not guilty, but righteous. Because in that moment, the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to the account of the one who believes in Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 and, and verse 9, Paul says, and to, be, and to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now next week, beginning in verse 18, we're going to see that the problem with humanity, with all of us, is that we are unrighteous. We are unrighteous people. And that's a problem because God requires perfect righteousness to stand before him. So, so how are we going to stand before God? Are we going to try to stand before a holy God like that in our own righteousness? Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says that, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We desperately need a righteousness not our own that, is, that will clothe us, that is credited to us. And praise God, it has been provided 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin. That's Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took our unrighteousness upon himself. And when we trust in him, we are credited with his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. So that when we stand before a holy, righteous God, it's not in our own righteousness. It's in his, we're clothed in his righteousness. In the show, um, NCIS, <clears throat> there's an episode of that where Charles Durning plays this, uh, this old Marine, this guy in his, his 80s, and, and uh, he's, he's charged with this crime. And so... <clears throat> At one point, uh, they're coming to arrest this old guy, former Marine. And so they, they show up to arrest him. There's two, two young, beefy Marines uh, coming to make the arrest. Kind of a, a, a snarling Navy lawyer is with them. And so they're coming to arrest this old guy. And they get ready to make the arrest. And, his, and, and the old man's friend pulls aside his tie. And there's the Congressional Medal of honor that he had won for acts of valor on Iwo Jima. 
many years before, and suddenly these two Marines and this Navy lawyer just snap to attention and salute. They're just in, they're in awe. Everything changes because of the, the medal that he's wearing. We wear the medals as believers, not that we have earned, but that Jesus earned in our place, right? We are clothed in his medals. We are clothed in his righteousness. It's the only way we can stand before a holy God. The old hymn, The Solid Rock, there's a line in that song that says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. If you were to stand before the throne of God, and you will, all of us will, will you stand there before a righteous, holy God in your own righteousness, which is like filthy rags, or will you be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus? That's the issue. And the way that you answer that question depends on whether you are united to Christ by faith. That's where he's going next. Let's look at it. He says in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then he quotes from the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Now this phrase, which the ESV translates from faith for faith, is very difficult to translate from the Greek. <laughs> you can tell that by the, what translators, all the different ways that the English translations translate it because it's different in you know, the, the NIV and the New American Standard and the New Living Translation and, and on and on. Um, they're all kind of slightly different, okay? But I want to tell you what it, what it means, okay? What I think it means. I think that, that the phrase that it's translated here in the ESV, from faith for faith. I think the meaning is, is that it is, it is by faith through and through. Through and through. So the, the way that, that we access the gift of God's righteousness, the way that we receive it is, is by faith, okay? Through and through, from beginning to end. It, it, is, it is by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now sometimes you'll hear believers say, we're saved by faith. No one has ever been saved by faith. We are saved by the work of Christ, <laughs> okay? But the way that we receive that, the work of Christ, the way that we receive the gift of his righteousness is by faith, okay? So faith is kind of like, it's like an open hand. It's like a child coming with an open hand to receive. That's, that's faith. That's the way we have to come. We have to humble ourselves as a child. But we must receive it. You know, the theologian Alistair McGrath tells about um, penicillin, the, the antibiotic that changed the world. I mean, people used to die of stuff that they never die of now um, because of, of penicillin. 
Um, but McGrath points out, you know, you can, like, you can, you can intellectually, you can believe that the bottle of penicillin is there. You can even believe that it has the power to cure blood poisoning. But until you take it in, right, until you take it in, there is no cure, right? We, we must receive Christ. There must be a personal transaction. The Bible says in, in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray. We are not children of God by nature. We become children of God by adoption. And the Bible says that when we believe in, when we trust in Jesus and his work for us on the cross and the resurrection, and we, we receive him, welcome him into our lives, then we become a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. You can come to him today. I don't know where you are in your life spiritually, but I know you can come to Jesus today. Believe, receive, and become a child of God. So Father, you speak to our hearts now in this time of invitation. Deal, work in us, call us, do a work in our hearts that we could never do. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. 
I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.